Well, hello, everyone. It is great to be back. <clears throat> the greetings that I've gotten this morning kind of made me check my calendar because it's like, you know, I was only gone a week. And it's like everyone says they're so glad I'm back. Uh, it's probably not a great time to thank Emmanuel for teaching last week, but thank you, Emmanuel, for teaching last week, genuinely. Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, Israel, good news, it's still there. And um, I can vouch for the fact that it's still there, and it's still a wonderful place to visit. If you've never been to Israel, this is a great time to go. It is basically empty uh, of tourists, but that is not going to last long. So uh, if you would like to go, it would be a blessing for you to go. Let me ask you a question. When somebody asks you about your background, what do you tell them? Of course, it depends on the context, doesn't it? If we're in church, we usually rattle off our testimony. And uh, the, the better we can, you know, the better we can make it, the, the better it seems to be. If we're in a business interview, well, it's a totally different response, isn't it? We, we give background on our business or our experience or whatever. If we're at a class reunion, the answers tend to um, inflate the success of our lives, and they kind of range from uh, exaggerating to being honest to answering, you know, well, my friend, that's none of your business. <laughs> but we talk about our background uh, in a lot of different ways, but thankfully, most of us keep it brief. Nobody has the time and the patience to listen to everything that happened during your junior high school experience. <laughs> there is a necessity to keep things selective, and probably that's all we remember anyway, it's just the highlights. Occasionally, though, we will encounter individuals who somehow do remember all the details of their life, and they will share it with you. They will drivel on about the color of the tablecloth or about how, you know, Uncle Bob is related to Holly or the, the date and time that Junior lost their tooth. I mean, over and over and over and on and on and on. But because time and especially because patients are limited, most people really appreciate the bottom line, and I am one of those people. And thankfully, so is the Bible. The Bible gives us the bottom line on so much. There is a lot, if you think about it, that the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us everything. You know, you could, you could sort of start with that comment, and it might have a little shock value to you. The Bible doesn't tell you everything. It only tells us what you need to know. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. For example, what did Jesus look like? Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, it implies he looked just like everybody else, but doesn't tell us what he looked like. You know, we don't know if Nehemiah was bow-legged. We don't know if Mary and Martha, you know, had a funny laugh. We don't know any of these things. Was King David as handsome as Brad Pitt? We'll never know. There isn't space in the Bible or in any book to record everything. And because the biblical narratives usually only reflect the turning points in life or in the lives of the individuals that, that the Lord has selected, we tend to look at biblical lives as nothing but nonstop action. I mean, read the book of Acts. It's exciting. I mean, the life of the Apostle Paul, it's riveting. 
the book of Ruth is fascinating. I mean, boom, 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 things are happening. And then you look at your own life and you think, gosh, you know, my life's kind of dull. If, if God works like he works in the Bible, I don't see God working in my life like I see him working in the Bible. We will go for years without any significant event occurring without considering the fact that the Bible is the same way. The Bible doesn't tell us everything. It is selective. It tells us what God wants us to know, but not everything we want to know. And we have to remember that even in the life of people in the scriptures that there are chapters devoted to, there's still huge gaps. The life of the Apostle Paul has gaps. The life of Christ with all that we have with him has gaps. The past few weeks as, we, as we've looked at uh, growing like Jesus in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, remember there's only one verse, Luke 2.52, that describes all of the years between the time he was 12 and the time he's about 30, we get one verse. Huge gaps in the life of Christ. Why? Because what the Holy Spirit wants us to know is there, and there's lots of details that aren't there. So when we look at the scriptures and then we look at our lives, we have to remember not everything is being told. When we hear exceptional testimonies, you know, when people stand up and give their testimony about how God's worked in their life, they have selected the events that they're telling you. And what you hear are just the highlights. There are years of gaps, even in their own lives. So it's not fair to do a comparison or to say, Lord, if that's the normal Christian life, if the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is the normal Christian life, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with you or me. It's just the reality that there is a ton of waiting between these high points that we call uh, high points in, in our walk with God. So let's look at Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We are starting a series today on my favorite. Sorry, I can't help you with that on your Apple <laughs> I didn't ask you to help, Siri. Thank you. Isn't that funny? My, it's, my daughter's name is Sarah. So, so often if I say, hey, Sarah, and then Siri will think that I'm talking to her. So anyway, we're starting a series today on the life of Joseph. Joseph is my favorite person in the Bible, other than Jesus, of course, and Moses, of course. But Joseph is a wonderful, wonderful man. And, but even in a life like Joseph, a life that covers so many chapters, we see gaps. We see large gaps. Joseph lived 110 years, and yet what we're going to look at his life in the book of Genesis really only covers like the first some 40 or so of his years. There's much of Joseph's life is not mentioned. The majority reads as a summary. Um, and this is the way it is in the lives of everybody, including ourselves. Genesis 37 introduces us to him as a young man of 17. Of course, um, we have just a couple of brief moments in Joseph's life prior to Genesis 37. We have his birth that's uh, reflected, I believe, back in uh, chapter 20-something. And then uh, we don't have much after that. 
We've got him mentioned. Jacob sort of favors him because he puts him in the back of the line in the safe place when coming up to face Esau. I mean, there's just hints of Jacob, the father, his relationship to his sons, and especially to Joseph, just hints of it. But now in chapter 37, the Spirit of God slows way down in Joseph's life and begins to give us details, and these details are significant. Let's look at the first verse, first few verses here. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Joseph was raised in a very dysfunctional family. All you got to do is read the chapters prior to 37, and you see Jacob and his four wives and how they, they connived and twisted and did all these things back in Padanaram with um, Laban in that context. A lot of sneaky people doing sneaky stuff, manipulating to get their way. And when they don't get their way, you know, the will of God, forget it. We're going to manipulate to get what we want. And so Joseph was raised in this context, and the, the other brothers were raised in this context, and they learned it from their parents. Remember, Isaac and Rebekah were doing the same things. Where, did the, where do we get our flaws in life? Have you ever wondered? Well, did you, have you noticed your parents did the same thing? And by the way, our kids do the same things as we do. We hardwire our kids for success or for failure and it takes the Spirit of God intervening, just as it did in our lives, in our children's lives and grandchildren, in order to draw them close to Christ. We're introduced to Joseph as the favorite. He's the favorite son of the father, Jacob. Joseph's father, Jacob, had 12 sons from four wives, and Joseph was the firstborn of the favorite wife. He was the firstborn of Rachel. And as a result, he was the 11th son, but he was the firstborn of Rachel. And therefore, because Rachel was the favorite wife, Joseph was the favorite and preferred son. And the other sons resented that. They really resented that. And the fact that Jacob gave Joseph this very colored tunic, as verse 3 describes it, the King James Version has the more popular way of referring to it as the coat of many colors. This is, we don't know exactly what it was, is it was a full-length tunic, probably of, had very different colors, it was varied in colors, and the goal of this tunic was not, based, was not just because, you know, here's a gift from father to son, it was a designation from father to sons that this is the favored son. And not only that, that Joseph, obviously, in verse 2, bringing back a bad report had some authority or had some responsibility of reporting 
and the brothers would have resented that. They would have resented their little baby brother coming up and having the gall to uh, bring back a bad report. They resented the father loving Joseph more than all his sons. And so they hated him, we're told in verse 4, and they couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. Now, I don't know what your family of origin was like, but uh, if you had sibling rivalry like this, you can relate to Joseph. You can relate to the emotions that are in a context where you are stuck in a family where you can't get out of the emotions where you feel hated. And this is what Joseph felt. He felt hated. He was hated. And his brothers could not speak to him on friendly terms. The only people that he could speak to on friendly terms was his doting daddy and his baby brother, Benjamin which we haven't mentioned, but uh, he's the only other son of the favorite wife, Rachel. Everybody else hated him. The brothers that he looked up to hated him. This is how he grew up. Remember how you felt at Christmas when your sister opened the gift that you wanted and you didn't get it? Remember how you felt when you, um, your brother got the Thunderbird for graduation and you got stuck with the family Nova? Fast forward to today and ask how it feels when a coworker gets the raise for the work that you deserved, that you did, or perhaps when you look around and you've worked hard all your career and for whatever reason your investments haven't done as well and now somebody else has a better retirement than you. There's a reason Scripture has to command us not to covet because we covet. These brothers coveted. Joseph had something they didn't have He had something they wanted. They wanted to be the favorite son. Joseph was the favorite son. They hated Joseph. When Jacob showered love on Joseph, he was also showering jet fuel on the anger of the other sons. What's amazing is Jacob didn't realize that he had felt the same way. You remember Jacob, when he grew up with Esau, his father favored Esau, and Jacob resented it. Jacob didn't remember remember what happens when you have family favoritism like this. And he repeats the family problem in another generation. The brothers responded by hating the object of their father's affection. But Joseph would also add to this hate, not intentionally, but because he would share some dreams, dreams that God gave him. Look at verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, he had still another dream and related it to his brothers. This is sort of a naive, you get the impression of a naive young man if dream number one didn't teach him. And he said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? 
Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Dreams. Dreams are funny things. Uh, If you've got a dog, you know that dreams are funny things because your dog dreams. Watching a dog dream is hilarious. We have had four Labradors in the course of the years, and each one of them has, has had dreams, violent dreams. In fact, so violent that there, there was one time that our dog, Rhea, was on the living room floor, and I literally thought Rhea was having a seizure. I mean, just violently laying there on the floor. And so I went over and, and grabbed her and shook her. I said, Rhea, Rhea. And she, she stops, and she just kind of looks up at me with these glassy eyes, like, what do you want? It was a dream. A dream. What can dogs dream that's so exciting? I mean, all they know of the world <laughs> comes from the backyard. You know, it's not that exciting. But it makes sense, though, why Labradors will snooze 12 to 18 hours a day. They've ex- they got to rest from all that exhausting sleep. A dog's dreams are frequent and violent, therefore comical and insignificant. But our dreams, now that's a different story, isn't it? Our dreams get more attention. If we remember them when we awake, you know, we, we usually, it, it, sometimes they'll reflect sort of a slice of reality, sort of like Alice in some offbeat wonderland. Uh, just this morning, now don't tell Kathy I told you this. But just this morning, Kathy, uh, she said, I, I just had a dream. And I said, what was it? She said, someone stole my luggage at the airport. And so she was working and trying to work it out with the, with the officials. Anyway, so she told me all about this dream that she had where people were trying to steal her luggage at the airport. Most of the time, Kathy designs houses in her dreams, she tells me, which is interesting. I can't imagine doing that. I never remember my dreams. I probably don't get enough sleep to to do that. Usually, I wake up before I can remember. But anyway, our dreams, uh, we take them more seriously, but, you know, we, we sometimes wonder why we have dreamed what we've dreamed. Even weird dreams have reasons whether they represent a, a fear that we have in our subconscious or whether they represent some distressing memory, or even if it's just bad pizza from the night before. Our dreams have reasons. But dreams and the Bible, however, are a completely different thing. They are more than simply these nocturnal brainwaves. They serve as prophetic announcements from God, and this is what Joseph was experiencing. Joseph's dreams weren't aspirations. They weren't personal goals. This was revelation to him from God. This is what God says is going to happen. He gave these dreams to Joseph saying, you are going to rule over your brothers. Now, it was probably a little naive for Joseph to share that with with his brothers. I mean, how in the world was he expecting them to react? But nevertheless, this is prophecy from God. And in fact, when we're told that Jacob kept it in mind, the implication is that Jacob understood this might be more significant than just dog dreams. This might indeed be words from God. 
Joseph's dreams were not the fantasies of a spoiled kid longing for approval. They represented prophecy. What did they reveal? They represented that Joseph was going to rule over the family. And the interpretation was clear. Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers got it, and they resented it. Jacob, the father, got it. He resented it. And so they understood clearly what Joseph's dreams meant. Look at verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Now, pause there for a second. They are down in the area of Hebron. If you're familiar with your geography of Israel, just imagine, if you're not, that this Kleenex box is Israel. It's sort of, you know, more vertical than horizontal. Hebron is sort of right in the middle, and Shechem is north of it, uh, you know, probably about 65 miles north. And even today, I was, I was shocked to, um, to hear some years ago that shepherds down in the area of Hebron still take their flocks north to Shechem to, in order for, uh, to have better pastures. And this is exactly what we see happening here. The brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Verse 13, Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Now, pause there just a second. Wouldn't it be great if all teenagers answered with such obedience immediately? (laughs) I'm going to send you to a situation where you know you're going to be treated poorly. And Joseph responds, I will go. He could have said probably what many of us will said, Dad, send somebody else. They're not very nice to me. You know, they, they treat me poorly as if you can't tell. Maybe Jacob didn't get it. But Joseph says, I will go. This, even at a young age of 17, shows a glimmer of maturity, a glimmer of obedience to the Father's will, even when personally he might prefer to do something else. Verse 14, then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Again, amazing. Jacob, um, Joseph could have gone up there and said, Well, I looked. They weren't there. They didn't leave word and run around and go back to daddy real fast with the news that uh, the bad news again a bad report about the brothers that they weren't where they're supposed to be but instead he finds out where they are where they are and he goes to them he goes to them in dothan dothan if, if is probably well see it's northwest of shechem so if you were to just travel probably you could probably do it in a day it's just a simple walk down uh, the valley called Dothan, the Dothan Valley. I've been to Dothan. It's uh, beautiful, and it's, it was amazing to stand there on the tell at Dothan, which is pretty high, and the valley of which the text speaks, and which we'll see here in just a second, spreads out all before, I mean, goes north and south, all before below you. And so I stood there on Dothan, and I looked at what was the south. I don't know what direction we're oriented here, but I'm going to say this is south. 
looked toward the south, and I could imagine Joseph coming up, you know, from this direction to greet his brothers. See him from, they see him from a distance and what goes on in their mind, what we're about to read. And then also I can imagine looking to the north and seeing the Ishmaelite traders coming down the valley from the other way, headed south on their way to Egypt. This is the context. His brothers see him coming. So look at verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let's see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. Now, first things first, right? They get there, let's get rid of this representation of daddy's love. Off comes the tunic. First things first, they strip it off of him. And then verse 24 says they took him and threw him into the pit. The Hebrew word there for threw means just that. They roughed him up. And the pit was empty without any water in it, meaning it was a cistern. cistern. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat a meal. Just Let's have a little picnic while our brother's in the pit screaming. This is what they do. After seeing him coming from the distance, something snaps in their mind. This has been building up for years. All the anger, all the jealousy, all the frustration finally explodes into a scheme that promises to get rid of their, their, uh, their baby brother who has been the hassle all these years, who has been the pain in their side. Let's kill him, they said. This is, this is their first solution. Let's kill him. You know, that, I guess that would do it, wouldn't it? That, that'd get rid of him. That'd take care of it. But instead, they purposed to simply dispose of his corpse in a nearby cistern and to concoct this story that some wild beast, literally the Hebrew is some evil beast, has devoured him. They see him coming. And then they, they rough him up, throw him in there, and then they sit down to eat a, pic, a picnic or eat a, a meal. And the word there for eat in verse 25 comes from the same word as the word for devour. So the evil beast devouring Joseph, and then the connection here in verse 25, they sit down to devour a meal. So the, it's almost as if Moses, the author, is saying, who's the real evil beast here? It's the brothers. It's the brothers. Well, let's continue verse 25. I sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother and our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, 
Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So just as they'd seen Joseph coming up the Dothan Valley from the south, so they looked the other way and they saw the Ishmaelite traders coming down the same valley from the north. There is a highway in Israel that runs the full length of Israel. In fact, it starts, it goes all the way up from Syria down through Israel into Egypt, an an international highway that was the envy of all world powers throughout all the centuries. Anybody that was a world power wanted to control Israel because Israel had that highway. This is why Israel always played such a center, uh, was the center of focus when the Babylonians, when the Assyrians, when the Romans, when the Egyptians, whatever world power was the world power at the time, always wanted to control Israel. Not because there was anything great in Israel per se, except Israel was the only land bridge. It was the only way north and south to trade or to fight with Egypt. You're not going to go across the Arabian Desert to the east. You can't cross the Mediterranean on the west. You had to go down this narrow strip of land called Israel with that international highway. The international highway forked three different ways through a mountain range called Mount Carmel. And one of those forks went right down the Dothan Valley, right by where Joseph was in the pit. So you see the sovereign hand of God working in Joseph's life, even in geography, even in the way that God orchestrated events so that they didn't meet at Shechem, but rather they met further on at Dothan along the international highway that would take Joseph down to Egypt. God's sovereignty is beginning to show itself in the life of Joseph. They don't want to kill him. After all, you know, he's their brother. we got to love our brother, right? So we're going to sell him as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. And so each of these 10 brothers would get two shekels each. The merchants made their way south. They pulled him up and they sold him. And we, we learn later in the story of Joseph that Joseph begged them not to do this and they ignored his cries. Now imagine that for a second. Even if you don't like your brother, your brother begging you like that, and finally, you know, he's taken away, you can hear his cries, distant, more distant, more distant, more distant. Finally, it's silent. They've gotten rid of the problem, and yet they can still hear it in their heads for years to come. Now, they decide, they still got the tunic. They got to say something to their father, when they go back without Joseph. So they decide to add another color to Joseph's coat of many colors, red. Look at verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he, he tore his garments. Evidently, Reuben was somewhere else at the time. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not, not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, 
But he refused to be comforted, and he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. They concoct this story. A wild beast has devoured him. And they present the tunic to, um, to their father. You ever think it's strange in this story as you read it that they only found the tunic? I mean, doesn't, don't wild beasts, you know, do they eat all the underclothes as well? No body parts to bring home? Just, just this tunic? That's all they found. That's all they found. That's all they report. It didn't add up. And ironically, Jacob himself had also killed a goat to deceive his father. Remember? And that's exactly what happens here. Inherited trickery. Now, the brothers probably felt great relief. Their lie worked. Ah, Daddy believed it. That's great. Now we're off the hook. We got rid of Joseph. And they broke their father's heart. They didn't count on Jacob's reaction like this. Ironically, by selling Joseph... They had hoped to rid themselves of, you know, the painful reality that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the other brothers. And the reality is, and, and instead, by getting rid of Joseph, they intensified the fact that Joseph was the favorite by looking at the way the father reacted. Their father's extreme reaction only confirmed the fact that he loved Joseph more than everybody else. He says, I'm never going to be happy again. I'm going to go down to Sheol to the grave in mourning for my son. In the meantime, Joseph, what was he thinking? Remember, God had given him dreams. He had promised him, you're going to reign over your brothers. What would you be thinking if you were Joseph? You are strapped sideways to the back of a camel on the way to Egypt, or probably worse, more so, you're walking behind a camel with your hands tied all the way down the international highway along the Mediterranean coast, all the way down to Egypt. Joseph must have thought, you know, Lord, this really wasn't part of the dream. The dream you gave me about my brothers didn't include them selling me to a foreign land. I mean, I guess I missed something here. Joseph knew that the dreams were of God. He knew the dreams were of God. But the circumstances directly challenged that promise. So the question is, how is Joseph going to respond? Is he going to continue to believe God? Or is he going to give up on God's revelation? Look back at verse 20. We didn't spend a lot of time there because we're going to look at it now and dial in on it just a little bit. Look back at verse 20 one more time. This is the bro what the brothers are saying. Now then, come, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Now look at this phrase. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. This statement by the brothers seems to be a sort of a throwaway statement by angry brothers who want to get rid of the favorite son. But this statement becomes the challenge, the tension for the whole Joseph story. What's going to become of his dreams? Joseph is now thrust in a situation that directly challenges God's promise to him. How's he going to respond? How are the brothers going to respond? How is Jacob going to respond? How are we going to respond? Because this isn't just about Joseph and the brothers and Jacob. It's about us. God gives us promises, doesn't he? We've got a whole book of promises here. 
God gives us hope. But our lives are so often filled with things that want to directly challenge that hope. That directly challenge that hope. It's almost like Satan in the Garden of Eden asking Eve the question, did God really say, do not do this? Circumstances will speak for the devil, won't they? They will quote him in our minds and cause us to wonder and to doubt if what the Bible says is really true or not. The brothers' words reveal the tension for our whole lives. Well, it's taken a while to get us here, but here's the first principle that we can pull from the text in Joseph's life. We've got three, but the first one is this. God's word may seem to contradict our circumstances or expectations. God's word may seem to contradict our circumstances or expectations. And often they will. You know, we'll come up on something, we'll read something in the scripture that seems to be a great promise from God, that is clearly a promise from God, and yet we'll experience something in our life that seems to contradict that. And suddenly the verses that we read in our quiet time that day or the verses that we heard our pastor teach, or the verses that we you know, hear uh, through various other means, seem as unreliable as last night's crazy dream, or even as laughable as dog dreams. It's really tough to sing, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I, when you're strapped sideways to the back of a camel, isn't it? You don't feel like singing rejoice in the Lord always. Ultimately, the hardest part of the whole thing is not so much the circumstances, is the spiritual confusion. Why would God allow this? Why would God allow this? Because ultimately, our problem is with God. Now, we won't say that. We definitely won't say that to other people. And often, we won't even say that to ourselves. But if we're honest, that's our problem isn't it? It's not a crisis of circumstances. It's a crisis of faith. We tend to point to other people as the reason that, that the problem is in our lives. We'll say it's because of my family. It's because of my spouse. It's because of my friends, my co-workers, my pastor. Even the devil gets blamed. And they all have a part to play, for sure. But ultimately, it's really God. Because God could stop it all like that. And he doesn't. It's a crisis of faith, not a crisis of circumstance. I love that the Bible, with even all the gaps that it leaves out, what it does include, includes reality in the life of spiritual giants. We read the scriptures and we think, you know, it's full of these lives of these spiritual greats that just never struggle. They've got all these, this great faith that's displayed in God, and the reality is they struggle. We see it here in the, in the lives of uh, Jacob and Joseph and the brothers, but we see it elsewhere. Moses, when he, he knew that God had sent him to deliver his people, and yet after a hard experience one day, Moses said this to God, quote, You have not delivered your people at all. Exodus 5.23. That's the great Moses. What about David's words in Psalm 13? How about this? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
This is King David's words, the great King David. Gideon, remember what Gideon said when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Hi, great warrior, the Lord is with you. What did Gideon say? How can the Lord be with us when we're in this circumstance? You see, even the greats of Scripture reflect our own heart, and they're recorded like this by the Holy Spirit to let us know the Lord understands that. He understands how we feel, that it's a crisis of faith. The greats are great not just because they have great responses, but because they have bad responses that we can relate to. So when we pray for God to bring relief or change or a certain result, we have to remember what we're asking God to do, even when we ask him to do something that's biblical, comes from a limited perspective. The best we have at any given time is a limited perspective. We'll ask the Lord, you know, help me with my character. Help me be more patient. These are the things we see. And God, may, and God of course, wants us to be more patient and all that. But God also knows, uh, you know, Ed, patience is one thing in your life, but uh, there's so many other things that I want to work on in your life, Ed. I'm picking on you, Ed, because, because <laughs> but the reality is the Lord knows not just what Ed is aware of, but all the other layers he's unaware of. Same in my life, same in your life. We'll ask God, God, help me with blank. And God says, oh, yeah, I've been on that for years. But right now I'm working on this other area that you don't even recognize and that you won't recognize for years to come. It was this way with uh, Jacob and Joseph and the brothers. When Jacob said goodbye to Joseph that day, he expected to see him back in a week. That's how long it would take to get up north to Shechem and back down to Hebron. One week, no problem. See you in a week, Joseph. He wouldn't see him for 22 years. 22 years. God is immeasurably patient as he works in our lives. There is a huge chasm between the God we want and the God who is. The God we want is a God who does stuff right away. The God who is is the God who is immeasurably patient. And the, what bridges the gap, what bridges the chasm between the God we want and the God who is, is the cross. We don't like that, but that's what bridges that gap. And by the cross, I specifically mean your cross, my cross. We all have crosses that are tailor-made. We all get taken to the carpenter's shop and get fitted for a cross that fits us perfectly. And we are nailed to that cross. Jesus says we take up our cross daily. There's no getting around it. Carrying a cross is not an elective in the Christian life. It is part of the deal. And we may want to try to leave it behind, but it is fastened to us. We drag it through life. Our problem, we think, is with God, but God is perfect. So our problem is really with ourselves. God never asked Joseph if he'd like a trip to Egypt, did he? All expense paid trip to Egypt, Joseph enjoy it. Nope. Joseph was tied and taken. God never asked you if you wanted the difficult season that you are in or that you have come out of. You were tied and taken, weren't you? 
God had to drag you there. But the reality is, he also was with you. He didn't just say, go to Egypt, see you later, but he goes there with you. Think about Joseph for a second. I mean, you really got, your heart really has to go out to this young man. Maybe he was naive, whatever. He was still a young man. He was still a human. He was still a believer in the true God who was suffering injustice. One day in Joseph's life, he enjoyed the comforts of home and all the advantages of a favored son. The next day, his wrists were bleeding raw from his slave bindings. One day, he was enjoying the tasty delicacies of his Hebrew home. The next day, he was eating moldy Ishmaelite leftovers. Incredible contrast in Joseph's life. His dreams had turned into nightmares. All in the course of one day, Joseph lost everything. Everything familiar, gone. Nobody spoke his language. He didn't speak the language. Everything was unfamiliar. The smells were unfamiliar. The pain was unfamiliar. Everything in Joseph's life was gone, including his dysfunctional family. You see, sometimes God has to remove us. Well, in fact, here's the second principle. Here's the second principle. God may remove us from our preferred situation in order to deepen our walk with him. God may remove us from our preferred situation in order to deepen our walk with him. God did this in my life. I did not grow up in a family that was the parents of my origin. If I had grown up in the family of the parents of my origin, I probably would be a very different man today, and I might literally be in prison. God was very gracious and used sovereignly my parents' divorce to put me under the leadership of my stepdad, a gentle, godly man who took us to church, and through the church I came to know the Lord. God sovereignly used a very painful upbringing in my life to bring about good. God may remove us from our preferred situation in order to deepen our walk with him. I know he's done that in your life as well. If our situation is so dysfunctional, we need another place to meet and grow with God, God may remove us from it. And that's exactly what he did with Joseph. It was hard. But God took Joseph out of his dysfunctional family and put him in a context where Joseph had nothing but God. And Joseph clung to God, we will see, as these chapters go on. Joseph was hardwired to fail because of the family that he came from. God, in his grace, took Joseph from that context in order to shape him. Well, look at the last verse here of chapter 37, and we'll also look at the first couple of verses of 39. Chapter 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him, sold Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now, chapter 38 we'll look at next week, but look at chapter 39, verses 1 and 2. It's kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. 39, 1 and 2. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him. So this is a reminder. From the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. The Lord was with 
Joseph. As Joseph entered Egypt, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was not out of the hands of a sovereign God. Joseph was playing right into the plan of a sovereign God. In Joseph's situation, the Lord was with Joseph. And God is with me. God is with you. God is with me. So let's say that out loud. Would you say it with me? God is with me. One more time. God is with me. This is a promise from our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the last words he ever said before he ascended, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it doesn't matter if you've been tied and taken to Egypt, if you are struggling more than you ever have in your life, God is with you. God is with, was with Joseph, we're told. And it made a huge difference. Joseph recognized that was in his life. Um, the third principle, final principle, is this. God often hides the details of his plan so that we trust him and not the plan. God often hides the details of his plan so that we trust him, not the plan. Joseph knew the end result. His, he was going to reign over his brothers. How in the world was that going to come about? He had no idea. In fact, circumstances seemed to directly contradict that dream. But we're going to see Joseph hadn't given up on that dream. Joseph knew it was from God. Joseph clung to the truth in spite of the circumstances. The details, Joseph didn't know. Joseph didn't need to know. He only needed to trust God. God often hides the details of his plan so that we trust him, not the plan. As we go through the life of Joseph in these next chapters that come in Genesis, we're going to see that God is indeed working in our lives to accomplish his good purpose, even though we can't see what he's doing. We'll learn to say, as Joseph would ultimately say in chapter 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's God's providence at work. You know one reason we like Joseph's life so much, other than it's just a great story? It's a great story. I mean, it's good. It's like the book of Esther. The book of Esther is one of those books that you think, man, that's a great story. This should be a movie. It should be a well-done movie. <laughs> Not just a movie, but a well-done movie. Joseph is the same way. The story is so wonderful. But aside, one of the reasons we love Joseph's life so much is not just because it's a great story, but because we can identify with Joseph on so many levels. Joseph's lot in life is a lot like ours. Uh, we've all had to wait on God for different things. We've all faced disillusionment. We've all had failed expectations. We've all struggled in temptation. We've all had lousy families. We've all felt like God stuck us on a shelf for years. We've all had close relationships that we thought were lifelong crumble. We've borne the weight of circumstances that were so difficult that nothing but time and God's grace could mend. Joseph's life is going to deal with all of these things, and it's going to show how God shows himself faithful in the, in the midst of it. We never would have chosen these strained ga gaps, would we, in our lives, but God's sovereignty in the end we never would have missed them. Let me give you those three principles one more time in case some of them were a little long. First, one, first one's this. 
God's word may seem to contradict our circumstances or expectations. The second one, God may remove us from our preferred situation in order to deepen our walk with him. And finally, God often hides the details of his plan so that we trust him and not the plan. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, we thank you for keeping secrets, for telling us that ultimately you work in our lives so that we will be conformed to the image of your Son. But the details of how that comes about, you keep a secret. And we're glad you do, because if you told us all the details of what we would have to go through and what you plan for us, we wouldn't have the courage to follow. Thank you for loving us enough to give us the end goal, but also walking with us side by side, just like you did with Joseph as he struggled in these initial days and years, wondering what you were doing. Father, we've all experienced to one degree or another, maybe not as desperately as Joseph, but to one degree or another, you have all taken us through the Dothan Valley in that desperate situation to where we have to trust you. Maybe there are even some that are here today that are in that circumstance. Father, we ask that the life of Joseph and that you're revealing this in the scriptures for the particular purpose of encouraging us would do its work to strengthen us to strengthen us in our lives today that we would cling to you and we would trust you even though we do not understand how a sovereign god could work in all the ways that you do we don't need to understand we only need to know that you're in control so we worship you and thank you and look forward to our study of joseph and the encouragement that his life will give us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.